This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Today we're talking with Amy K. Hutchins. She's a speaker, trainer, and business strategist, and she teaches leaders at the C-level all about critical thinking and, of course, how to modify their own stories and, quote-unquote, align their brilliance so they get the most out of themselves. We're also gonna talk about common secrets that leaders have that prevent them from winning big in business and, of course, in their personal life. With that, welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason. What's shaking, brother? What happened to the foreign language thing? I guess we can take that next time. Oh, well, we can do some. Uh, All right. So far, so good. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. If you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the toolbox where we discuss body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, and everything else we teach here at AOC. Just text CHARMED to 33444 or go to theartofcharm.com. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have some of the questions. All right, let's talk to Amy Kay. Amy, thanks so much for coming in today. Tell us what you do in one sentence. I change the way you think about your life. Wow, that's good, but also somewhat vague. That's the point, that's why I only let you have one sentence. Let's flesh that out a little bit. What are you aiming at? specifically? So my goal is either to stand up in front of 5,000 people at a conference or to work with a small group of 15 to 25 leaders in an organization in a think tank environment and teach you how to think more critically so that you can solve your problems more quickly, build momentum, be more productive and more profitable faster. And I normally never look at things like this, or at least I don't dwell on things like this. Of course, I read them. Your bio says, a former executive of a billion-dollar global consumer products company. That could not be more vague. Is there a reason that you couldn't say, hey, I'm a former senior vice president at Procter & Gamble or whatever? Yes, because a lot of people bring assumptions to it. So I'm happy to tell you that I was the director of education for Europe for John Paul Mitchell Systems, which is a hair care company, and they're a brilliant company. I just actually watched a special on them last night. And no, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. John Paul DeGioia is brilliant. And he's got multiple companies. And you know, if you're not into hair care, maybe you're into Patron tequila. But one of the things that people will often say is, oh, then you only know about hair care or, oh, were you a hairdresser? And they'll put you in this box because it's easier for them to label you. And so what I want to say is that I actually can't cut hair. I can't color hair. I have a problem, you know, putting it up in a ponytail, but I can sell you shampoo because I was on the business side of it. And so what I do is I kind of remove that assumption filter, which allows people to find me far more approachable before they label me. I totally get that. I mean, imagine what it's like saying, yeah, I have a podcast. I mean, imagine what the last decade of telling people that would have been like if we didn't say, I'm a broadcaster, (laughs) or whatever other sugarcoat we had put on it, because usually people just said, what's that? Although I gotta say, anybody who goes, oh, you're an executive at Paul Mitchell, are you a hairdresser, is kind of sounds a little dense, actually. Well, you know, I think that's normal human behavior. So it's, it's no different than like if you showed up in a certain look or a certain outfit and people just put their filter on it. It's really because, and I don't mean this in a rude way, my brain's wired the same way, we're lazy. So it's really quick to fall back on the assumption than it is to do the heavy lifting of some critical thinking. And I mean, and I had a great job and they're a brilliant company and I've had a lot of other great jobs with brilliant companies. So for us, it was just easier to say, hey, look, Before they think that, you know, they can only hire us if they're in the hair world, you know, we want them to realize that I'm a business strategist and we'll get rid of the assumption. Right. Whether it's business or whether it's hair care products, burgers or microphone preamps, there's going to be something at the high level that it has enough in common with your level of expertise. You're not just a shampoo sales lady. Yes. And I get that. Although I was a darn good one. I bet you were. (laughs) And you have great hair. And I do understand this because it's not even that we're lazy. This is evolutionary psych at its finest. If someone walks up to me and they have tattoos on their face, which actually happened the other day at a train station in an underground tunnel, this guy walked up to me and I thought, 
okay, what's gonna happen right now? Tattoos all over his face and, and his hands, big guy. And he goes, excuse me, do you know where the Amtrak track is? All these trains seem to be local. And I just answered like a normal person, but my reptile brain went, oh, thank God that was all that was. And that's because he had tattoos on his face. Had he looked totally different, I would have had a very different reaction, and that's because we're wired to think a certain way and make prejudgments because they keep us alive and they have for the last 100,000 years or whatever. So it makes sense that that would sort of extend naturally to our bio, because if someone says I'm an executive at McDonald's, you think, oh, okay, fast food, and, and somebody who's a little less sophisticated might even say, oh, you work at McDonald's, which is a little bit of a different connotation. So I do understand that. That's very, very normal. And you teach critical thinking, which I love. I would love to hear more about where that comes into play because when I think executives, I think these people must be amazing at critical thinking. That's how they got to where they are. Uh, not so much. <laughs> you know, This is why you have a job. I laugh, but I'm also really serious about it. I mean, I think that you know, if I said, you know, is your company creative or innovative? And you'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe our R&D department is or maybe so-and-so is creative. But we have a very myopic definition of it. And so for me, it was more the idea of if everybody stopped thinking that creativity is something that you're born with and people started realizing that creativity is a skill and it's all about problem solving and everybody can be a better problem solver, then every single person can be more creative and, as they say in the UK, innovative. If you just start to ask better questions, think about things differently, get a fresh perspective and change some of the things that hold us back. And so for 25 years, I have been a teacher and I am still a teacher. I just do it now you know, with people who have big titles. And that must be pretty rewarding. And the rewards come because you can see the direct impact, I would imagine, of what you're teaching. However, teaching people who already think they know a lot of stuff that's gotta be pretty tricky, and I'm not just blanket labeling everybody like that on purpose. I'm probably one of those guys who's like, look, I got a successful business, what are you gonna show me? And I can imagine that if you've been doing it for 40 years and making billions of dollars for your company, you might even be a little more resistant to somebody coming in and tell you that you need to think differently in order to get more success. Well, I think that, you know, we've told these executives that they need to be confident and they have many reasons to be. I mean, these men and women have incredible achievements and they are successful and they are bright. And so we're not coming in and saying, okay, you need to be a totally different person. What we come in and say is, look, you've got tremendous skill sets and obviously you've been successful and nobody's blowing smoke at you. You have, you've earned the right to be confident, but the world is shifting and the world is changing and there are new challenges and there are new problems that need to be solved. And we'd like you to take a fresh perspective so that you can expand your capacity, so that you can expand your potential. And when you come from a very gracious perspective of, hey, you're really talented and we'd like to help you maximize your ability to use your talents, they're very receptive. And I'm not a woo-woo girl. Like I come in with hardcore science and hardcore tools, take theory, make it really practical. And we've ended up having a tremendous following because people realize we want you to play bigger, better, better, and bolder. It's not to tear you down, it's to actually help you be bigger. I think people probably realize that sort of intellectually, but then emotionally when somebody's telling them what to do, it seems like that's when the resistance would kick in. First of all, let's talk about what you teach and you know we can dive into what sort of resistance you might run into during the teaching process as well, but I'd love to give the listeners, the AOC family, something they can take and run with as well. Yes, absolutely. So let's start with something that's really basic. Have you ever been in a boring meeting? Can you, have you ever sat in a meeting that you thought was a total waste of time? Of course, yeah. Uh, you, most meetings, probably. Yeah, we all have. And so one of the things that I talk about is that if you want people to stay engaged, if you want people to be more committed, if you want them to be better problem solvers in that meeting, one of the most fundamental things that you can do is trigger the brain with questions. And so a lot of us will go into meetings and one, there's either no agenda or it's an agenda of statements, like we're going to discuss the mission statement, or we're going to discuss Al's project, or, you know, Sally's accounts. And nobody's really paying attention because there's no interest, there's no engagement. And so one of the things that we teach leaders to do is to start the meeting with an overarching question that you're trying to answer. So how might we increase sales by 12%? Or what can we do to make this a more efficient process? And when we do that, what we then do is we say, okay, if these are the questions that we want our folks to answer, then the next thing that we'll do is we'll open it up and we'll say, okay, what questions would you add to the agenda 
And then you take all of the participants' questions, and the next thing you know, you've got a shared agenda where it's not just Amy Kay's meeting, but okay, this is our meeting. Or it's not just Jordan's meeting, this is our meeting. And you get a tremendous level of buy-in, and you raise thinking in the process. How do you start getting people in the room engaged and thinking like an owner? Because I've noticed that, of course, whenever I call a meeting, I can't wait to be there. I want it to be started yesterday. I want everybody on fire. Jason's very passionate about what he does here as well. But, you know, occasionally we've got to call on somebody else and we're like, hey, what's that noise? And they're like, oh, sorry, I'm cooking. You know, it's a conference call or, you know, things like that. (laughs) Exactly. So in the real world, Jordan, who are you going to meet with in the next 45 days? It's really critical. Just give us a first name. We're going to meet probably with Norm. Okay. And what do you want to accomplish when you meet with Norm? What's your objective of that conversation? Not long term, not for the next three years, but just in this upcoming meeting, what do you want to accomplish? I want him to see that what we're looking at for Art of Charm, I want it to be as close to as important to him as it is for us so that he really feels like, wow, this is urgent. This needs to get done. And why is that? Why do you want that? What will you get from him if he increases his sense of urgency? Right. If he increases his sense of importance slash urgency, what happens is we get a lot more resources to work with, which means we can grow faster. Okay. So the question that you might pose is, how might we find the value that allows us to get the resources that we need? Or, you know, how best do we get the resources that we need in order to grow faster? Or how do we create a win-win partnership with you in order to get the resources that we need so that we can grow faster? So I'm brainstorming. I'm riffing. But if you'll notice what I'm doing is I'm trying to put that objective into the form of a positive forward-focused question that's going to get Norm excited to go to the meeting. You know, if I call Norm, typical human behavior, hey, Norm, you know, let's get together next Tuesday. I really want to, you know, talk to you about the importance of the art of charm. He's going to be like, yeah, whatever. But if you're like, hey, I want to create a win-win partnership for you. We got to establish our value. We got to find the resources so that we can both grow more profitably. You're going to get a little bit more buy-in from Norm showing up. And then you say to Norm, what are two or three questions, Norm, that you think should be on the agenda that you want to have asked and answered so that you can find the value in this, so that you feel like this is a win-win partnership. And then he sends you back a couple questions. And then when the three of you or the four of you or the five of you sit down, however many people you're going to meet with in addition to Norm, every single person's questions are on that agenda and they feel ownership for the meeting versus it being a Jordan pitch show. Oh, I see. So it's like we're all invested emotionally in being there instead of, hey, I hope I get the salmon and it's good. And then Jordan's going to talk about some crap that he wants. And then we'll be back in the office probably by one at the latest. Exactly. And so what happens is so a lot of times in the business world, you're going to have a meeting about somebody's poor performance or you're going to have a meeting about turning some project around. And managers need to realize that if they sit down and they have that punitive, punishing, fear based conversation, they are less likely to change behaviors than if they sat with somebody and said, let's co-create an agenda so that we all get buy-in and commitment to playing better. In the corporate structure, how does this play out? Because I can see this working really well when you're at an equal level or maybe you're, I could probably get away with it being a creator for Norm, but what if I'm asking for a meeting with somebody who's at the C-level and I'm not there, right? I'm a middle manager, maybe I'm new to the company, I'm a younger guy, 27, I wanna have a meeting about me getting more money. How do I then say, what would you like on the agenda? And the guy's like, my agenda is to get this over with so I can get back to work. What do you want, right? That's kind of what they might be thinking. Yeah. Then I go back and I say the same thing as I said, well, then what's in it for him? So the idea is that if you're going to go meet with a boss and you're asking for a raise, then you don't put down on the agenda, hey, can I meet with you on Tuesday to talk about a raise? Because they're going to avoid that conversation like the plague. But if you wrote down, you know, what can I do to create more value? What, what could I do to go above and beyond to show you that I'm committed and I'm serious about working for the organization and growing in my career? Well, by golly, you're going to get that meeting. Right, that makes sense, because then they want to make you more productive cog in the machine. And if that's what's on the agenda, yeah, why not, right? So what I talk about is taking the two or three minutes ahead of time to prepare for a critical conversation to put what I call guardrails around it. And guardrails is an agenda of questions so that you're in a meeting and somebody hijacks your agenda. You know, they take you down a rabbit hole or they have some personal, you know, agenda of their own, or you get blindsided by something that somebody says and you realize you didn't do the prep that you needed to do to get what you want. 
And so one of the things that we teach, like we had a think tank today in New York City, I had 15 CEOs in the room and everybody was working on agendas for their own critical conversation. And it was a four minute exercise, four minutes. And they looked up and I said, what was the value of preparing for this conversation? And it only took four minutes. And they all looked at me and they're like, why haven't I been doing this for 25 years? I've just ensured that I'm going to get what I want. And I was like, yes, that's what this is about. Do you have a story of this in action? Yeah. One of my favorite ways to frame a conversation is to realize that the brain only buys two things. And people, I get a lot of resistance on this, but in a neurological level, the brain is not buying the art of charm. The brain is not buying waffles or widgets. The brain is only buying good feelings and a solution to a problem. That's all it's ever capable of buying. And the good feelings are not about you. And that's a mistake that a lot of leaders and entrepreneurs make. They're like, I'll walk in and I'll do my pick and I'll tell them how amazing I am. And the brain's like, okay, but I want to be amazing. I want to feel good. And so when you sell people feelings of goodness about themselves, you get more buy-in. And when you sell them solutions to their problems, of which, by the way, are their own good ideas, which I've never seen somebody turn down one of their own good ideas, you get greater commitment. And so one of my favorite stories is about an agent in the NFL. And this agent used a series of questions to negotiate contracts between the football franchise and the player. And so what he would do every season is he would sit down and he would say, okay, what are the strengths of the player? What are the strengths of the franchise? What's working in the current partnership? Well, what does the player want? What does the franchise want? What's the benefit when they both get what they want? All right, well, are there any challenges? Are there any frustrations? Are there any concerns to what they're getting? Okay, well, then what would we do more of, better, or in addition to what we're doing now to ensure that we get another win-win partnership? And he was revered because he didn't walk in with the myth of the I'm a tough negotiator and he who speaks first last wins. He realized that's all nonsense. If he can just make everybody feel good about themselves and everybody come to ideas to the t- or bring ideas to the table, it will be far easier to negotiate a contract. And it was. And he ended up being one of the most successful agents in the history of the NFL. Now, when we're selling people their own good ideas, can we frame an actual example? And do you use this in your personal life? Yeah, all the time. So here is a great example. So I was in California, I was in Silicon Valley a couple of weeks ago, and I shared this framework. I shared these questions. And the questions very simply are, what are our strengths? What's working? What do we want? What are we going to get when we get what we want? And then what can we do more of better in addition? In other words, what are the tweaks that we can make? And so we do this and we do it in sales. We did it in marketing. We did it with an accounting. We did it with all kinds of examples this day in the think tank. And then this guy looks up and he says, can I use this on my wife? (laughs) I was like, yes, but one technical foul. Remove the worksheet and insert alcohol. And he was like, okay, I totally get it. But it's true. It's a fabulous relationship tool. I mean, one of the things that guys dread hearing are those words, honey, we need to talk. And you can't blame them because it's usually followed by somebody being pissed off about something. And so rather than nagging and whining or blaming or belittling, if you sat down with your significant other, your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whatever, and you said, okay, what are the strengths of our relationship? What's working? What do we want? What's the payoff when we get what we want? All right, well, what would we each do more of, better, or in addition to ensure that we move forward successfully? It is one of the all-time best relationship tools. And guys love it because nobody's in trouble. Yeah, it sounds great. But nobody being in trouble sounds like a major win for a lot of my friends. And and anybody trying to talk about a problem inside a relationship is going to be looking out for that. Absolutely. And, And of course, you know, the way that we dialogue in relationships, especially personal ones, whether it's with a sibling or a spouse or your kid, is that everybody's waiting for the shoe to drop. Everybody's waiting for you to be like, okay, but what do you really want me to do? But, you know, why are we talking about this? And what you're saying is no, this is a framework where nobody's in trouble, nobody's getting blamed for anything, but we're both responsible and accountable and excited about implementing our own ideas for making this relationship stronger. We did it last year at a retreat. We had a couple's retreat with a bunch of senior executives. And the guys were just like, this is awesome. And the women were like, this is awesome. And so it's not even gender specific. Men and women really love the tool because they're going to get what they want. Perfect. When we come back, I want to talk about common fears that leaders have since you have such good insight into the sort of inner working of the C-level brain. We're talking with Amy K. Hutchins. This is The Art of Charm. 
Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools to help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaigns. And sign up today for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, and we're back with Amy K. Hutchins. Look, you have worked with some top-level people for a really, really long time. You have a very good, unique insight into the brain of the C-level. What are leaders afraid of? What are their worst nightmares? You know, I really have had the privilege of figuring out what keeps them up at night. You know, I know what makes their stomach turn. I know what makes their palms sweat. And that's really, it's been humbling. And what's fascinating to me is that they have more in common around these fears than they have differences. So when they're a little bit vulnerable, when they're willing to share some of their secrets, they realize that they're not alone. You know, it's a whole myth that it's lonely at the top. It's not if you're willing to talk to other leaders. And one of the things that I'll often ask is, you know, what are the fears that are preventing you from being more successful? Because a lot of the secrets that leaders keep aren't the secrets to success. They're the secrets that prevent them from being successful. You know, I'll often say, you know, why do you feel frustrated and jealous when a friend shares his good fortune? Or why does a multimillionaire believe she'll die broke? You know, what causes a manager to sabotage the talent that they just hired? And that's because of the fears that we have inside of ourselves. I would love to know why people find themselves feeling bad when a friend shares their success, because I definitely went through that a long time ago. And 
I'm not even sure that I'm over it at all now. I just control for it. Whereas, you know, if something really good happens to a friend, I'm like, wow, that's so awesome. Oh, it means something negative about me as a person. Wait, no, it doesn't. This is success for a friend. A rising tide lifts all boats. This person is rooting for me. I'm rooting for them. And then I'm like, then I feel guilty about feeling that way for a second. And then it kind of all goes away and I can go back to being a human again. But it's kind of a crappy feeling because it's two bad feelings, right? This negative reflection that I make it about myself and then feeling guilty for doing that and not just being happy for my friend. Yeah, and we also just had Dan Harris on the show who said, you know, he actually had the quote, every time my friend succeeds, I die a little inside. Yeah. And yet, let me flip that. Mark Twain, brilliant comedic writer, just awesomely smart man, said that comparison is one of the worst forms of self-abuse. And so what we do is when somebody comes and announces their success, we're comparing it to our success. And so the first thing that we do is we end up self-abusing ourselves. So Jordan, without blowing smoke at you, there's a tremendous amount of maturity in saying, okay, look, it's okay for me to have that human understandable response of being a little bit jealous, but now I'm mature enough to say, okay, it's not about me. It's about them. And I need to be happy for them because their success has nothing to do with the path that I'm on. And oftentimes, if you look at it, where that jealousy stems from and where that kind of not so positive reaction originates is in the two fears that every single person on the planet has in a first world country. And that is, I'm not good enough and I don't have enough. And you just fill in the blank with whatever that is. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough of a network. I don't have enough friends. I don't have enough talent or I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough at being creative. I'm not good enough at drawing. I'm not good enough at designing. I'm not good enough at leading. And those two fears, whatever yours are, they'll haunt you. What happens is when somebody else is successful, it exacerbates our own fears and our own insecurities. Well, it does. And I mean, thank you for saying it's a maturity thing, but if you're dealing with C-level executives that are 20 years older than me, what's the difference? How do you get them to then go, okay, this is something that I should be happy about for my fellow executive and not be like, oh no, this is a personal tragedy, I'm probably gonna get fired, insert catastrophe here. Right, and that's part of changing your story. And that's exactly what you're doing in the self-awareness. So one of the things that I joke about is people will tell me in a coaching session that they're like, I just can't help the way that I feel, you know, it's just the way that I feel. And my first professional response is bullshit. Because though you feel the way that you feel based on the story that's in your head. And the story that's in your head is causing you to feel a certain way. And that's actually how the brain is wired. You don't have feelings first, you have thoughts. I mean, you can't be scared of a tiger unless you have the thought, this tiger's gonna eat me. And so one of the things that we teach executives is choose your stories wisely. Be careful about how you compare. Be careful about how you define success. Be careful about, you know, looking at somebody else who's 30. You might be 34. They've achieved something. You're like, dang it, I should be further along by now. Well, now you're shitting on yourself. And so these are the things that we are constantly talking to executives about is when somebody says, change your story, or somebody says, change your attitude, most of us nod. We speak English. We go, yeah, I totally get that. I just don't know how. And so the first thing that we have you do is to look at the truth about a lot of things. And so we help executives find the less painful story in their thought work so that they can go forward with a little bit more hope. I have an example of how to do that. One of the executives that we worked with years ago, I was speaking in Florida and there were about 500 people in the room. And I asked if anybody wanted to volunteer to walk through this thought work tool. And, you know, this woman's hand immediately shoots up. And Jordan, I don't know about you, but beware the woman that volunteers for a psych tool right away. Yeah, no kidding. I was like, okay, here we go. So I said, what's the painful thought? You know, what's the story that's in your head that's causing you pain? And she says, my daughter will never be successful. And I was like, oh, holy cow, you know, in front of 499 other people, we're going to go there. And she says, you know, my daughter's never going to be successful. And so I said, okay, when you think that thought, how does it make you feel? And she's like, I'm angry. I'm pissed off. I'm like, okay, when you feel those feelings, how do you act? And she said, well, we either scream at each other or we give each other the silent treatment. And I said, okay, what's the result? And she says, the result is that we never have a constructive conversation about our future. What's fascinating about the brain is that you will always get a result that proves your original thought to be true because the brain wants to protect itself. So I asked her, is it true that your daughter's never gonna be successful? And this woman was really bombastic and she said, well, you know, it's what I said, isn't it? And I looked at her and I said, look, I know it's what you said, but is it true? 
You know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year, is your daughter not successful? And she says, oh, well, when you put it like that, I guess sometimes she is. And I said, great. So now we know that you're lying to yourself. (laughs) You know, that went over well. So (laughs) she's looking at me and she's not real happy. But I said, look, you realize now that you're lying to yourself. So give me two examples where your daughter's been successful. And Jordan, you can't make this stuff up. This woman looks at me and she's like, well, everybody at the office loves her. And I'm like, okay. I wasn't expecting you to say that. What makes people love her? And she's like, oh, she does these creative birthday parties every month. You know, she brings in cake and bagels. I was like, okay, that's pretty nice. You know, it's kind of a successful move for, you know, EQ. And I said, what else? And she says, well, she just won a bravery award. And I'm like, you're kidding. She's like, no, 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 no. She had a DUI. I'm like, no, no, no. Backstory, mom. She's like, well, she had a DUI. She's on a bus. The bus gets in an accident. She performed CPR on one of the folks. And so the mayor has just given her a bravery award. She's clearly loved and she's clearly a go-getter. And she just saved somebody's life. So she's been slightly successful. So I said to her, what's a new belief? I can't fight you all day long with logic, but if you choose a new belief, we can change the way that you play. And she says, well, maybe if she worked for somebody else, she'd be successful. And of course, Jordan, I was like, you think? But I didn't say it. Yeah, no kidding. So I was like, okay, good, you know? And I said, what's another one? And she's like, well, maybe if she got her act together. And she's like, oh, can I combine them? I was like, it's your new thought, go for it. And she says, okay, if she works for somebody else, and she gets her act together, maybe she'll be more successful. Now notice, she didn't go Pollyanna. She didn't say my daughter's going to grow up to be the first woman president. But she shifted just enough that I asked her, okay, when you think this new thought, if she works for somebody else, and she gets her act together, she might be successful. I said, how does that make you feel? And you could visibly watch this woman's shoulders drop. And she said, I'd be hopeful. I'd be excited for her. And I said, okay. And if you're hopeful and excited for your daughter, how are you going to act? And I quote, she says, well, maybe I'd be the mature mom that I'm supposed to be. And I'd have a constructive conversation with my daughter about her future. And I was like, and what would the result of that be? And she'd be like, well, you know, we'd maybe be able to move her forward, find some better ways for her to play. And that to me is the power of choosing a new story. It changes the way that you play. And this makes sense because what we know and what the AOC family knows from listening to countless shows on similar subjects that we're talking about here is your essentially your beliefs control your actions, which control your outcomes, your results. And so we know we can change beliefs. I suppose when asking what leaders or beliefs leaders have that sabotage them, there have to be some commonalities that probably are shared with pretty much everybody else, and some that are probably unique to them. I'm interested in those, and I think, how do you teach them to make decisions that are based on the new story instead of the old story? Because at the end, their decisions are what matters for the company. Absolutely, and there's a ton of great decision questions, but two of my favorites come right back to the core of who we are. I joke about somebody when you were little said there's no such thing as a dumb question, and my response to that is no, there really are dumb questions. (laughs) So you have to do enough heavy lifting to say, what are the bigger, better, better, bolder questions that you need to ask yourself? And when you're getting ready to pull the trigger, when you're getting ready to make a decision, one of the things that I will always ask somebody is, well, how does money reflect the meaning in your life? How are you going to invest time, dollars, energy in a way that reflects your pleasure and purpose? And sometimes the light bulb just immediately goes off because people realize that they're so caught up in the 90 mile an hour go, 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 that what seems like a great decision today, three weeks down the road in hindsight, it's going to seem pretty stupid. And that's because they didn't stop long enough to take a deep breath and do some critical thinking about, okay, what do I find pleasurable and purposeful? And to me, that's the intersection of fulfillment where pleasure and purpose meet. And then how does my money reflect that meaning? And money is not necessarily even cash. Money is the resources and the energy that goes into something. So you might say, hey, look, I want to sit down and I want to grow Art of Charm. And that sounds so amazing today. But if you actually take the time of, okay, where do I want to invest my energy, my time, my dollars, and my resources in how I grow this podcast? that might change the way that you ultimately frame it and where you take it or how you expand it or who you bring on board because it takes a lot of energy to have an incredible show like you do and you can't just go out and do it all. You have to pick a focus area. You have to bring on the right talent and people. But until you ask yourself, okay, how is this decision gonna reflect where I find value, where I find pleasure and purpose in my own life, we often make erroneous decisions. 
How long does it take these people when they're working with you and or in general to change the story? Because it, it almost sounds like go to therapy for a lifetime, change your story. I mean, how quickly does it work and take effect? It can it can actually work in minutes and I'm not exaggerating. So for instance, if I look at that woman and she's stuck in the story that her daughter's never gonna be successful, one of my favorite questions then following on is what is the story costing you? Or what is this story? If you changed it now to where you say, well, she could get her act together, then what does that afford you? And so it's no different than a lot of us are familiar with the question, what does this cost us? If we shut down this factory or if we let go of this person or if we hire this person, we have a habit of saying, what will it cost? I often like to flip it around and say, but what does it afford you? What doors does it open? What opportunities does it bring? So it isn't just the cost, it's kind of that inverse of if you move in this direction. In other words, let me ask you this. If you did the prep to get Norm all excited about your upcoming meeting, what is that going to afford you and he? What kind of opportunities will be presented if you and Norm can get aligned and get on the same page? Oh yeah, I mean this dictates the future of the show in many ways, or at least the future of the show as it relates to Norm's company. Okay, well that's pretty powerful. Now, a lot of us would be like, well, you know, if we lose Norm, there's a big cost to that. Flip it. If you can get Norm aligned, if you can take enough time, two or three minutes to prepare an agenda of questions because you know what it's going to afford Norm, you could even leave that in the framework of your conversation with him. You could say, look, the opportunity is I see it and you could lay it out in such a way that rather than being the fear-based and the negative, you can get him so inspired and excited that he's willing to exchange in a high-level dialogue in a way that he wasn't before he walked into the room. And it's just about changing the way that we play. Why do you call it play, by the way? Because I think life, it's hard enough. We need to play. And play means that I'm more positive, I'm more excited, I'm more open to ideas, I'm more free in enjoying the process. And a lot of time leaders, they don't enjoy the process. They're at war with the present. You know, the present is a grind to get to some milestone. And what we've discovered after 25 years of working with leaders, that most of them cross the finish line and they're pretty empty. It's not as fulfilling as they thought. And so we work really hard with leaders to say, you've got to enjoy it because this is your life along the way. You know, the leader that gets to 55 and realizes that he or she has no relationship with their kids or they're on marriage number five, or, you know, they had bad investments along the way and now they worked really, really hard and they're broke in the end. I mean, it's just, there's a better way to play versus going through the grind. When we get back, I want to hear about the secrets that leaders keep, their uh, their so-called worst nightmares, and of course, how you fix them. This is Art of Charm. And now a quick message from our newest sponsor. Remember, supporting our sponsors is the best way to support the show. That's right. AJ, did you know socks, tees, and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? I had absolutely no idea. Bombas knows. And they're doing something about it, making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every item sold. With all the clothing brands out there, it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. That is completely amazing. And that's why we're so excited to be working with our newest sponsor, Bombas. To date, Bombas, one purchase equals one donated commitment, has helped customers donate over 100 million essential clothing items to people facing homelessness. That's a lot of good done by people just buying the Bombas they wear every day. Visit bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. And once you try Bombas, you'll know why so many people have purchased and donated so many. The comfort geniuses at Bombas work tirelessly to make your everyday things your favorite things. Whether there's an arch-supporting sock that feels like it was sculpted to your foot, a buttery soft tee with no itchy tag, or underwear that feels like nothing while supporting everything. The best part, AJ, Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you got the wrong size, your dog chews up your socks, or a pair vanishes in the washing machine, and you know they will, it's easy to get a free return, exchange, or replacement. There's nothing worse than when Puppers gets a hold of my favorite Bombas athletic socks. They're precision engineered for being active with sweat wicking power, impact cushioning, blister defense, and no annoying toe seams that get between you and your goals. I try to limit my essential purchases to one time a year, and I was so pumped to know that Bombas has my underwear, socks, and tees needs completely covered. I have been loving the soft underwear and tees here in Medellin. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. 
That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash charm. And use code charm at checkout. All right, we're back with Amy K. Hutchins. I want to know, what are these most common secrets leaders keep? Because I have a feeling many people who have jobs in general or people who look up to executives or really any high-level performer, we kind of think or at least have the hunch that they never make mistakes or they're infallible or they always have this plan, right? You get guys like Elon Musk and you're like, man, this guy's got it all figured out. He's 10 steps ahead. This guy's like, he's the Bobby Fisher of life. You know, he gets it. They've got secrets. You know about these. Let's talk about it. Yes. So I had a great time. I'll be vulnerable and share one of my secrets first. I wrote a book on the 10 steps of being an awesome leader. And when I was done writing it, I was like, you know, this book sucks. I don't even want to buy this book. And this book has been done. I mean, we all know the secrets of successful people. What I wanted to do was look at the secrets that prevent us from being more successful, the secrets that really Elon does have. We're not, we're infallible and we're human and we make mistakes. And so I wrote a book that was far more fun for me and far more creative. And that was on the 14 hidden secrets that prevent us from being more successful. And the most common that I start with is something called the imposter syndrome. And the imposter syndrome is when leaders experience feelings of either inadequacy or self-doubt that persist even when their results indicate that the opposite is true. So even when they'll have multiple successes in a row, they keep looking over their shoulder because they don't feel worthy of the role that they're in. Or they think that somebody's soon going to discover that they're a fraud. And so they're constantly looking over their shoulder. And I always joke because I started off teaching gifted and talented kids in Washington, D.C., and that was a common fear of theirs that at some point, some teacher would recognize that really they weren't as smart as everybody thought they were and that they'd be found out. And this is not something that your low-level C players ever experience. You know, your C players like, I'm amazing. And you're like, well, not so much. But you're overachieving, you're high achievers, you're high performers, you're high producers. A lot of them suffer from the, hey, at some point, somebody's going to realize that I'm not good enough or that I don't have enough talent. And that's called the imposter syndrome. And so what we highly encourage leaders to do is to realize that you don't have to be perfect, but you do need to recognize your strengths. You do need to realize that you have lots of talents and lots of gifts, and then you need to surround yourself with other smart people because nobody's going to do it alone. Yeah, you know, I can really identify with, especially early on in the success of The Art of Charm or sort of mid-level through it, that bad behavior was something that I was, I guess, using to try to cover up the fears. So like, you can even hear it in really early shows. Yeah. And you know what? A lot of them do. You know, they become arrogant. They'll second guess. They'll name drop. In fact, I met with one woman one time that was so insecure that almost every sentence that she said had like some celebrity or some high profile person in it. And we're like, you know what? You're good enough. You don't have to be associated with every, you know, celebrity on the planet. You are good enough. Just you. And that was a really tough thing for her to hear. And you'd think that you were being all positive, like, no, you're enough. But she didn't believe it. And so when leaders can get past this whole, I'm a fraud mentality, they end up behaving better instead of constantly being in what I call pissing contests with people. Exactly. Yeah, I was just going to say, it seems like a pissing contest. It seems like the kind of thing that I was very much party to really early on. And it was tough because my job was to be in large part aware of this. And I was, and that helped, but it still didn't kind of eliminate the whole thing. I wish I could say it did, but it was just so irresistible to do that because the imposter syndrome was so intense. Well, and it's also when somebody brings up a concept that you've never heard of, you know, if you're really young and you're suffering from the imposter syndrome, you're going to fake it until you make it, which is like the worst advice that you can give somebody because it keeps them from learning. And so what I'll often tell the young millennial entrepreneur is say you don't know, because then in five minutes, nobody's going to judge you. They're going to educate you. And then in the next conversation, in the next, you know, round of funding or in the next meeting that you have, you're going to be smarter than you were in the last one because you just said, hey, look, I haven't read that book or no, I'm not familiar with that concept. But this mantra of fake it till you make it is preventing us from just being real to say, hey, look, I'm smart, but I don't know everything. And just so basically just accepting your faults as they are and realizing that that's okay. It seems like easier said than done in many ways. Well, it's easier said than done because we have this myth that you've got this Renaissance man or this Renaissance woman and you have to know it all. In our society today, that's impossible. We're inundated and we're overwhelmed with information. 
And so somebody said the other day, they asked me a question on a panel and I had no clue what they were talking about. And so I said, look, I don't know about that, but here's what I do know. And so it's not that you don't add value. It's that you just don't pretend to have it all figured out because nobody does, including your Elon Musk. (laughs) What about competency addiction? That's something that was kind of new to me when I read about it. Yeah, that's the inverse of the imposter syndrome. So competency addiction is somebody does really, really well. And now we're in a new era, you know, industry changes have come along and they're still utilizing outdated mindsets and behaviors to solve new challenges because they're a little too in love with their own talent. You know, they might've done something amazing in the seventies or they did something amazing in the eighties or the nineties, or even at the pace of technology, they did something amazing three years ago, but now their domain expertise is less relevant. It's less applicable to what's going on in the world today, but they're not willing to change. And so they're the guy or the gal that becomes bombastic and says, well, you know, that idea will never work. Or, you know, let me tell you about the time that I did. And what they end up realizing is that rather than evolving, they're becoming obsolete, but they're refusing to change. And so in the book, The Secrets Leaders Keep, we talk about the fact that you may not be suffering from the imposter syndrome, you might be suffering from competency addiction and that you have a talent, but you're not staying fresh. You're not actually staying relevant. And so again, the same type of behaviors, if it goes unchecked, you get big egos, you get arrogance, you can get bad and costly decisions because somebody's trying to hide the fact that, you know, they're no longer as relevant as they used to be. And that can be a very scary place to be for a leader. I think that sounds terrifying, actually. But I see this happening in people that used to work here at AOC. When we outgrow them, they start acting so unbearable that it's actually the reason that we get rid of them. It's not just that they started to become a little bit less relevant or less helpful. We were totally willing to help them become more relevant or retrain, but instead they started acting like such obnoxious, awful humans that we couldn't even be around them anymore. And I think this may be why. And there's a huge cost to that. I mean, think how sad it is for what they're going through. And then look at the cost that it is to you as a company when they start acting like jerks. You're like, hey, if you would just embrace some new ideas or some new training, you know, we've spent a lot of time and energy together. Let's not lose that momentum. Let's not lose the investment in you. But if they're addicted to their own competency from five, six, 10 years ago, there's a big loss, big cost to that. Yeah, I mean, tell me about it. I'm paying it all the time. <laughs> I know you are. What about people who are super high performers? I was actually listening to somebody interview Dave Letterman, and he was saying, nobody is harder on me than myself, and he rewatched every show that he did after they taped it and was just beating himself up all the time. And Peter Jennings, we heard from Dan Harris, did the exact same thing. He was hard on everybody on his team, but he was infinitely harder on himself. That sounds destructive. Well, you know, obviously there's a payoff, but there's a competing commitments. And what I mean by competing commitments is that, yes, you've got perfectionists, you've got high achievers. They're extraordinarily hard on themselves. In fact, your really type A folks are always harder on themselves than they are on others. And there's a level of excellence in that. So the competing commitment is, you know, if I'm really hard on myself, I get better and I get rewarded because I get better. But at the same time, when you are so hung up on your mistakes or your transgressions that you can't give yourself a break, you actually end up limiting your potential. And a lot of them can't see that they'd actually be better if they were a little less critical of themselves. And so what I'll often say is they'll cripple or they'll truncate their ability to be more successful when they execute the next idea because they're a little hung up on the fact that they were a poor performer the night before. And you'll see that a lot in the theater or um, with performers in Hollywood. You know, if they get too critical of themselves, they actually make themselves worse. And it's kind of like I talk about, have you ever seen where they'll clap on a movie set and they'll be like, okay, take five. And then the next thing you'll joke and you'll say like, take 105 and then take a thousand and five. Well, it's because the more critical and the more hard we are on ourselves, the worse our performance gets. Oh, so you mean it's not like take five, like take five minutes as a break. You mean like take 67 where they're re-taping the same scene because people keep screwing up. Got it. Yes. And so what I'll often tell leaders is when you make a mistake, yes, step back. You need to reflect. You need to evaluate. You need to look at what went wrong so that you can go forward with a better plan. But if you're going to obsess over what you did, then you're losing your own energy and you're not actually helping yourself live out your potential. And kind of the human way of looking at it is, have you ever screwed up? And instead of letting yourself screw up once, you replay that screw up over and over in your head. 
Yeah, it's called every time I make a mistake. Yeah, you're really, really hard on yourself. And yet, if a friend did it, you would probably tease your friend once and then realize, okay, if I tease him again, I'm going to look like an ass. So I'm only going to tease him once. I'm going to joke about it. And then we're going to move on. But we don't do that with ourselves. We beat ourselves up. And so one of the things that I highly encourage high achieving individuals to do is to treat yourself like you treat a friend. You know, you might rib them a little bit, you might tease them a little bit, but then you're going to let it go because you realize if you don't let it go, then you're the jerk. So why would you be a jerk with yourself? I mean, if people talk to their friends like they talk to themselves, they wouldn't have any friends. Brilliant. And I totally agree. (laughs) I totally agree. Well, Amy, is there anything that you want to leave us with that we have not yet asked of you? Yeah, you know, there's one concept that I'll share that I think is important for everybody. And that is that all of us need to let go of our hood. And what I mean by that is that most of us at some point in our lives have to let go of our past. And I don't mean the good pieces. I mean, the people that told us, you know, you could never have a podcast or like the teacher that you mentioned earlier that said, you know, you'll never be successful or you're not a great writer. When we let other people define us and label us or set limiting expectations, we limit who we were meant to be. And I truly believe, it's my own belief system, but I truly believe that every single person on this planet has got incredible gifts and talents and has their own unique purpose. And so what I'll often talk about is you've got to leave your hood. You know, somebody was this primary programmer of some negative message about who you could or couldn't be. And it isn't until we let go of that and say, look, I'm going to leave my hood and I'm going to go be the best, most awesome person that I can be, that you really will be able to do that. Amy Kay, thank you so much. Really, really interesting stuff here to get a peek inside the brain of the leader. And there's a lot of people listening right now who go, oh my God, that's me. I have that. Or they simply say, oh yeah, that's what's going on in the upstairs office. And when they get there, they can avoid these pitfalls as well, hopefully. I hope so too. Super interesting stuff. I mean, we've already heard a lot on the show about imposter syndrome and things like that, but competency addiction and self-criticism fixation are things that I think everybody who's even remotely towards the top performer level can really identify with that. I mean, everybody at every level that I know has suffered from that at some point. So that to me is fascinating. Thanks so much to Amy Kay for coming on. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank her on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show. You can tap our album art, by the way, which is the picture of us on mobile podcast players. So right on your phone, show notes should show up. And I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. You can find our amazing sponsors in the show notes as well at theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. And of course, join our social capital challenge. This is essentially, we're gonna guide you step-by-step through networking, connection skills, inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier in the show. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.